This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Benedict Jacka discusses Burn, which is the seventh book in the Alex Veris Urban Fantasy series. Then Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, recaps the AWP Conference, which is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, uh, on the nonfiction list, we've got quite a few here. We've got uh, two titles, our two highest debuts, uh, have an ampersand in them, and one is Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein, and the other is Lust and Wonder by Augustin Burroughs. Actually, I should say, uh, the Peggy Orenstein, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape uh, from Harper Collins. We say best-selling journalist Orenstein follows up Cinderella Ate My Daughter with a look at what happens when the little princess hits puberty. And the Augustin Burroughs, right on the tail, uh, at number 12, is Lust in Wonder, a memoir, and this is his seventh autobiographical work. He's best known for Running with Scissors, and this is 14 years later. So, And then we have Lauren Conrad. This is at number six. Uh, this is kind of a lifestyle book. She was starred in one of the MTV reality shows, Laguna Beach. And this is at number six. It's called Lauren Conrad Celebrate. And this is uh, just talking about... Uh, her guide to entertaining with different kinds of lifestyle tips throughout. And she was very popular. This is her second lifestyle book and it is going strong. Then we have at number 14, the power of I am two words that will change your life today by Joel Austin. This is from faith words press. And we say Austin offers a more detailed take on his popular message of his latest book, directing believers to look beyond their own needs and wants. Austin advances his message to a higher plane, advocating a life of reaching out and sharing your blessings. Uh, and then we have at number 23, we've got a couple of these, the, we've got two, these two cookbooks that the authors got their following either as bloggers or on Instagram. We have Eating in the Middle, a mostly wholesome cookbook by Andy Mitchell, which is a real popular weight loss blogger who lost 135 pounds and she did so with healthy and sensibly proportioned meals. We say many recipes, particularly those created for dining with friends are calorie laden. Such satisfying filling recipes will keep weight conscious cooks loving food. So it's for people who really love food, not skimping on flavor. And um, Mitchell's uh, weight loss memoir in 2015 was called It Was Me All Along, and that sold 37,000 copies in hardcover. She's got, you know, she's got, you know, over 30,000 Instagram followers and 
10,000 Twitter followers. So, um, some of whom might buy books. Some of whom might buy books. And at number 23, a lot of them did. And then we have one, one that I really like. This was uh, the Love and Lemons Cookbook, an apple to zucchini celebration of impromptu cooking by Janine D'Onofrio, another blogger. She's from Austin, whose Love of Lemons blog won the 2014 Best Cooking Blog Award from Sever. We say celebrating spontaneity in cooking with plant-based inspiration, this imaginative recipe collection will please cooks who take their cue from ingredients as much as from recipes. So uh, A to Z, it's all there, uh, number 25 on our nonfiction bestseller list. I'm really hoping that my headset microphone isn't picking up my rumbling tummy because mm. uh, those those cookbook reviews yeah. make me hungry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, over in fiction, we don't have a lot of change. Um, we have uh, at number three, Brush of Wings by Karen Kingsbury. Um, that's our uh, top debut this week. And uh, of course, um, at number at number one is Harlan Coben. And uh, actually at number two is The Nest by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney, which is at number four last week. So that one's oh, great. climbed up a bit. So A Brush of Wings, Karen Kingsbury at number three. This is the third book in her Angels Walking series. This is inspirational fiction about divine intervention. We don't have a review of it, um, but the cover copy is uh, about a woman who needs a heart transplant and uh, decides that instead of getting the transplant, she's going to just spend the rest of her life working at an orphanage and helping children. Mm. And uh, there are angels moving around in this, uh, this milieu, helping to make sure that people get the good things that they deserve for right. being good people. If uh, that's the sort of story that really tugs your heartstrings, then you will be uh, among the thousands of people picking up this book. It sold 14,000 copies in its wow. first week out. Very respectable. Number six, we have Journey to Munich. Uh, Maisie Dobbs novel. This is the 12th book in the series by Jacqueline Winspear. Our review says it's subpar. Um, Maisie is struggling with a, a double tragedy. Uh, her husband died while testing a fighter plane, and the shock of the loss caused Maisie to miscarry a pregnancy. Uh, we say that Maisie is unfortunately unconvincing as an undercover operative, and the plot relies too heavily on contrivances. Uh, and this is uh, set in 1938. You have the the sort of looming World War II era um, going on, lots of intrigue and danger, but uh, to carry that all, you have to have a, a protagonist who's being in the middle of the story mm, makes any right, sense right. and apparently this time around it does not but Winspear certainly has her fans uh, and they're happy to pick this one up Number 10, we have No Safe Secret by Fern Michaels, uh, a perennial bestseller, writer of romance novels and women's fiction. And uh, we say that this is a somewhat roughly written story of secrets, revenge, and personal redemption for 21 years in the making. Right. And uh, this is one of those books that kind of uh, straddles the romance, women's fiction uh, line. You could see it marketed in either direction, but it really does focus on the story of one woman who's had some very hard times in life and uh, finally sees her way through to a happy ending of her own. We say that Michaels's dedication to advocating for abused women is heartfelt, but the story does suffer from repetitive writing, plot holes, and stereotypical characters. However, her many fans are likely to forgive these problems for a tale of strong emotions and courage. Mm. So that's at number 10. At uh, number 15, we have The Other Side of Silence by Philip Kerr. This is the 11th Bernie Gunther novel. 
And uh, it's set in 1956 on the French Riviera, so another historical mm. thriller there. And it opens on a dark note with Bernie confessing to a failed suicide attempt after his wife abandoned him. Mm. Uh, we say that uh, you know, there are various surprising turns in the plot, but most compelling are the occasional flashbacks in which Bernie recalls trying to do the right thing while serving as a cop under the Nazi regime. So uh, another World War II uh, factor in there. And uh, finally, down at number 22, we have The Ancient Minstrel by Jim Harrison. Uh, we say this collection of novellas is one of Harrison's slimmer efforts, but he still has one of the most companionable voices in American letters. So, mm. so having a collection of novellas is a little bit of a challenge for the reader. Usually you'd see novellas on their own or accompanied by shorter fiction. But uh, in, in this case, you get one story after another of you know, significant length, um, but each story is quite quite different. Uh, we said the title novella is rangy. There are some tales about animal husbandry. Some of them are amusing. Um, some of them are intense. And unfortunately, the last novella is the weakest, a shaggy dog mystery fitting uneasily with a salacious and not particularly convincing erotic plot. So a little bit of everything there. Um, and uh, that one's at number 22 with just under 2,000 copies sold this week. It actually came out last week, but this is its first week climbing up the bestseller list. Oh, great. And that's what we've got. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Benedict Jacka tells us about magic and moral complexity. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Benedict Jacka on the line. His new book is Burned, part of the Alex Veras series. Hi, Benedict. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi. It's nice to meet you guys uh, at last. So this is the seventh installment in the series. Tell us a little bit about Alex, who is a mage living in London with a very unusual set of abilities. So the setting is set in London, as you say. Alex is a diviner. Majors in this setting have specialized abilities, kind of like chess pieces, I guess. Mm -hmm. Some are stronger in some areas, some are stronger in others. They all have different strengths and weaknesses. Alex's particular magic is divination or probability magic, which makes him very good at information-related work, but he can't affect the physical world directly. Tell us a little bit exactly how that works from. I like the way that the, the visualization of it happens um, in the book. And there's something you call path walking, which uh, is particularly of interest. Yeah. So every majors have their own unique set of abilities. They're grouped into families, the three ones being elemental, living, and universal. Alex's magic is divination, which is from the universal set, which tends to be the weirdest and most different of all the different magic types. So basically what Alex's ability gives him is the ability to see the answer to any if-then condition in his immediate future. So he can see what will happen if he does action X. So if he goes walking, walks in a certain direction or does a certain thing or presses a certain button... His ability lets him look into the future and see what will happen. And that's basically it. He has a whole ton of different, more complicated spells, but they're all based off that same inherent ability. So 
what you call path walking is the longer term version of that, where you try and follow one thread of the future through minutes or hours or sometimes even days into the future, whereas other ones are much more short term. And he's in this context, um, he, he's sort of trying to stay independent in a London where all of the magic users, the mages, are are mostly split into two factions, um, which are dark and light. But you make it very clear that there are nuances on both sides. This isn't just like a cartoonish idea of good and evil. Yeah. So in this setting, the two biggest power blocks are the light mages and the dark mages, which are both either somewhere between philosophical differences and political parties, depending on how, how you look at it. There are actually an awful lot of mages in the setting who are independent and who aren't loyal to either of the two factions. But the main way they tend to stay independent is by not getting involved in any of the big league disagreements or fights or arguments or stuff like that. So over the course of the series, Alex has been doing a fairly bad job of staying out of those disagreements and so on. So this book, number seven, is where that comes to a head. And so what challenges does Alex face in in this installment? This particular one, well, I guess it's not really a spoiler since it's in the blurb. He's finally managed to irritate the wrong person from the Light Council, who are the head of the Light Mages, and they've sentenced him to death. Well, that's awkward. Yeah, it's kind of awkward. (laughs) The rest of the book is mostly him trying to deal with that. Can you just tell us a little bit for the uninitiated, the a, a difference between the dark and the light mages in, in, in your book? Probably the best way to think about it is that they represent a split between a more lawful, ordered view of the world, which is the light mages, and a more anarchic, chaotic one, which are, are the dark mages. So the light mages are a lot more organized. They've got a whole political structure and a government and an elected-ish council and a bureaucracy and organizations and so on, whereas the dark mages go much more with an anarchic, do-what-you-want approach to things. So it's not necessarily uh, a, a good versus evil with the dark and the light. It's just a different kind of almost political system. It's more like that. It's more that the light mages have a political system mm. and the dark mages don't. So that means that the light mages are the only ones with any kind of government or significant organization. The reason that they tend at first glance, to look a bit like good on the light side and evil on the dark side is that the dark mages don't really see any particular issue with having quite a few of their number do unpleasant things to other people since they really have no interest in restricting what other dark mages do. The problem is the light mages, once you get to know, to know them better, often end up doing stuff which in the long run is just as nasty to deal with. It's just they're more respectable about it, I guess. Right. <laughs> the difference between dealing with, a, at the worst level, dealing with the dark mages is like dealing with a bunch of street gangers and psychopaths, whereas the worst of the light mages are more corrupt politicians and CEOs. Ah, got it. So could you give us a little just just, just description of this uh, London, this era, this time? Just give us a little uh, background on it. What, what, what are we looking at? What's the setting? That's relatively simple, actually. I grew up in London and spent pretty much all of my childhood there. So the London of the Alex Ferris settings is just 
modern day London, but with an undercurrent of magic going on beneath the surface. I see. So Alex's former master, he used to be apprenticed to a dark mage who's kind of the worst of the worst, uh, named Richard, and he's been a threat looming over the whole series. But he he doesn't actually make too many personal appearances. We've been waiting and waiting. So <laughs> what what part does he play here? In this particular one, it comes in at some point towards the end, but that's one detail. I probably shouldn't spoil it. All right. Well, then we, we, we won't push too hard. In the larger scale, though, the biggest effect he's, he's had has more been in terms of the effect it's had on Alex's interactions with everyone else since, because Alex was an apprentice to the guy, from the point of view of the, of the light mages, it's kind of the equivalent of him having studied under Osama bin Laden or something. It's not really a reputation that's very easy to get rid of. Right. So he's just seen as, as corrupt no matter what he tries to do or how, how he tries to shake that association. Pretty much. He's tried to shake the association and he's done his best, but it's one of those things that's really hard to get rid of. So a significant magical operation takes place in Aleppo, Syria, far from the London, London of the setting of the series. And so what made you decide to choose Aleppo? And tell us about that uh, that setting, just as I asked you about London. <laughs> that, unfortunately, is one I don't know anywhere near as much about, given that Aleppo it isn't really the most tourist-friendly destination at the moment. Right. If I want to go to a location in London that I'm not that familiar with, I can go over and skate over or take the underground Dover or something. Not with what's happening and what's happening in Syria, not so much of an option. So with that one, it was mostly long-range research. Mm. So so tell us about this uh, Operation Aleppo. What's going on there? And why did you choose Aleppo? Mm. Why Aleppo? It ties into a bunch of long-range background stuff, so which is not so much to do with what's going on in Aleppo now as what happened 500, 1,000 years ago in, in the history for that, for that period. The operation is basically that Richard is making a move to try and retrieve a powerful magical item. The council have found out about it. They've found out that it only become that it's hidden in a very hard to reach location that only becomes accessible for certain limited time periods. So they send their own force to try and get it first. And Alex gets caught up in the middle of that. So we said in our starred review of the book that this is a deeply intelligent, morally complex series. Let's talk about the moral side of things, which you've already touched on a little bit with the nuances of, of light and dark. But there, there's a lot in these books about hard choices. Yeah, pretty much. One thing that tends to come up a lot is that Alex gets put in not necessarily no-win situations, but ones where you really have to compromise one thing or another. And one thing that I try to bring up, I guess, is that the more difficult and dangerous in some areas that your life is and the less protections you are, then the less you're insulated from these sorts of things. It gives Alex a different, very different perspective from the light mages because they usually just don't have to deal with the same kind of problems that he does because since they don't have his reputation and enemies they can count on the 
magical law enforcement to protect them, whereas Alex generally can't. I feel like there might be a metaphor in here somewhere. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe just a small one about uh, people who, uh, in in our world, have uh, less of an ability to rely on the police protecting them, and maybe more of a reason to fear them. Yeah, that it can be that. It's also just a matter of if you have the kind of job or lifestyle that brings you into contact with with these sort of people, it does tend to give you a different a different perspective on things than if you lead a relatively sheltered one. So um, Mark was uh, was doing a little background research and found out that you were a philosophy major at Cambridge. Uh, how does that influence your books? Uh, well, one of the things I was always interested in in philosophy was ethics. So I think that tends to tie into an awful lot of the books I write, the stories I write, just because I suppose... Moral philosophy, particularly questions revolving use of yeah, power and things like that, are ones I've always found interesting. Although the metaphysics stuff I studied with things like questions of probability and determinism and free will ended up being surprisingly applicable to this as well, which was really not something I was expecting at the time I was doing it. Can you talk a little bit about the ethical dilemmas or, or, or moral dilemmas that Alex might be facing in this book? In this particular one, yes. one that has come up a lot in the past and comes up to a degree in this one as well, is the question of how you're supposed to interact when you're dealing with groups where the, the two groups are in conflict with each other. But instead of there being a bad, a good side and a bad side, neither of them are particularly good. Mm. So it, it's a problem he's had to deal with in the past and also one he has to deal with in this one, which is what you're supposed to do when you've basically got two very large, powerful enemies who are both a threat to you, but also a threat to each other. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Benedict Jacka, the author of Burned in the Alex Veras series. Um, this is an urban fantasy series, and urban fantasy owes a lot to noir, so urban fantasy protagonists are usually sort of set up as noir-style loners. Alex is different. He's kind of a father figure to several young mages. Tell us a little bit about that part of his life. That's one that's changed a lot over the course of the series. When the series started out with book number one, Alex was very much alone and isolated. Since then, what's changed is that, firstly, he's taken on an apprentice, and he's also forged quite close bonds with a couple of other young mages, Anne and Varium. So those two, along with his apprentice, Luna, plus him, have ended up being kind of the core group for the stories. And and how did that happen? What What led you to complicate his his life um, with having these younger people who look to him for guidance, even as he's you know, really struggling to figure his own stuff out. Honestly, I never did it consciously. 
It, it just kind of happened. So I never at any point sat down and made the decision to do it. But I think looking back on it, a lot of it was that, particularly in the early books, while Alex had an easier life in some ways, he wasn't particularly happy mm. because he was his life was pretty lonely and isolated. And there's another character who shows up in the first book and again in this one called Helicion, who's another one of Alex's old teachers, who kind of represents what Alex would have ended up becoming if he'd decided to go down the staying alone and isolated to be safe path. And so along those lines, I mean, of taking care of others, uh, kind of the father figure. I mean, in your books, the, there are themes of family and friends, community. Uh, tell us about those, those themes. I guess one thing that shows up is that Alex's friends and, friends and contacts and the people he cares about are both the thing that makes him most vulnerable and also the thing that keeps him going. The thing about diviners in in this setting is that because of the way their magic works, if they devote themselves just to protecting themselves, they're very, very hard to hurt or endanger in any way. Because if they just isolate themselves and spend their time looking into the future, then it's very hard to catch them pretty much ever. The problem with that is that it mean it involves living like a paranoid hermit which at some times in the past Alex has done, but he's come to realize that is really not what he's willing to do in the future. But the flip side for that is that it means his life is an awful lot more dangerous because while people can't necessarily threaten him directly, they can threaten the people he cares about. And he's also um, a shopkeeper. He's got a store where he sells magical objects, and um, that's a another way of living within the community, except that um, part of what he's selling are these these sort of trinkets to just your standard non-magic using um, person who wants some, you know, some crystals or some sage to smudge or whatever. And the other mages give him quite a lot of flack for having that much interest in, in non-magical humans. Pretty much. The other mages see it as something of a joke, really which it, it annoys Alex, he would probably rather they see it as a joke than they see it as some kind of threat. So he generally p- puts up with it. The thing is, while 95-99% of his work in the shop is basically selling crystals to random tourists and new agers, mm. there's a small fraction of people who trickle in there for whom the interaction with Alex ends up being a, a really big deal. And the reason for that is that he's one of the very few people in the country or the world where normal, non-magic people without any contacts in the magical world can just walk in and get advice or help. Just going back to a little bit to the setting, what is the percentage of the population uh, of mages uh, in, say, London? Is it just a small underground? Or are there more than we think uh, walking around with and amongst, as, as Rhodes said, the, the uh, <laughs> non-magic humans? They're pretty rare. The numbers would be only, only on the, the order of uh, 0.01% or something like that. Though you get a higher concentration in London because they're more they tend to congregate a bit more in the big cities. Mm. Adepts are a lot more common there. Um, tell us a little bit about the mage-adept distinction there. The way it works is that 
magical talent is, is structured as a sort of pyramid. The vast majority are normals or mundanes who not only don't have any magical ability, but they don't have any ability to perceive it and have got a really strong psychological disinclination to believe it even exists. You've got a much smaller fraction, maybe only 1% or so, who are sensitives who can pick it up to some degree at least. The deep end of the pool, you've got the mages who are wholly proficient with it. Then in between, you've got adepts who are kind of a halfway house between sensitives and mages, and they don't really exist fully in one world or the other. They have a very limited ability to use magic, but usually they can only do one particular trick, kind of like being a mage who can only who only knows how to cast one spell. So I, I wanted to ask a little bit about your your writing habits. This is the uh, the 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 seventh book, but you also wrote a couple in the uh, which was in the uh, Ninja series. What is your writing habit like? Is it a daily routine, and how do you come up with new plots for your for your novels uh it's pretty much a daily routine now it didn't used to be when i was starting out in writing career it didn't be much more intermittent i'd do long bursts where i'd write a ton and then long sections where i would do just about nothing nowadays i try and pace it out and get a page or so done each day and do at least a little bit each day even if I'm really struggling. And uh, several of the secondary figures in the series clearly have their own very complicated backstories. Do you have any plans to, to write those as short stories or novellas? Or you know, is there going to be a, a spin-off series about the Keepers? Uh, I could do, I guess. But at the moment, I'm very much settled into doing Alex's stories, the main one. And I guess I could do a spin-off series, or, but... I'm never sure how well those work if you look at the ones that are out there, mm. which are spin-off series of famous book series. Quite often, they just don't seem to to have the whatever it is that made problem is that it's not that when you start writing a spin-off series, it's not a new world and a new setting anymore. An awful lot of it is familiar, so it's just a bit less exciting for readers. Mm. So tell us a little bit, just going back to the origination of Alex as a character. Did did the uh, when you were developing Alex, uh, did the character development come first, or was it the plot, and then you realized you had to have a character, and then the, the character came from that? Uh, it actually started with the magic abilities, and everything else came after that. Mm. Which I guess is kind of appropriate because in my setting, the kind of magic you can use is tied to your personality. But originally, where the whole thing grew from was when I was thinking about, I knew I wanted to do a story in this setting with a magic user, and I was figuring out which type I wanted to do. Now, we, we could ask you what's up next for Alex, but that would require spoiling this book, which we definitely don't want to do. Um, I am personally dying to know, but I'll, I'll have to wait like everybody else. Um, but uh, do you have a sense of how long the series is going to go? It feels like it could really keep going forever, but there's also a sense of like this big climax on the horizon. Yeah, it's probably more the second than the first. It's not going to go on forever. I've I've... I haven't got the entire ending of the series planned out, but I know roughly where it's going now, and the books are starting to move in that direction. 
if I had to guess, I'd say there might be around 12-ish books, maybe. But we're probably past the halfway point now that Burned is out. Mm. Well, that was still a higher number than I was fearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're not that close to the ending, but I've never, I've never really liked stories that go, book series that go on and on forever, where the plot progression stalls and nothing ever happens. So I would really like to actually finish the series and have it tied off and be able to look back at it on it as a completed work. That would be nice. And do you have any sense of what you might work on after that? Or is this just your whole world right now? Nope, this is pretty much my whole world right now. I haven't taken a step back to look at what I might do afterwards. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about it. We really appreciate it. No problem. It was really nice to talk to you guys. And thank you for letting me come on the show. We've been talking with Benedict Jacka. You can find his book Burned in stores right now. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, takes us to AWP. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Caitlin Greenidge, author of We Love You, Charlie Freeman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today Craig Teicher, PW's Director of Digital Operations, is here to tell us all about AWP. Craig, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. So you just spent three days, I think, in uh, the City of Angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about the conference. Give us, a, give us first, if you could, just like a, a, a layout. Like, what is it? Where was it held? What did it look like? How many people went? So uh, AWP is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Annual Conference. And what it is is the – it's sort of like a BEA but for the literary and small press world. And also it's an academic conference for the, the creative writing uh, side of, of academia. So what, what happens is this year 12,000 writers descended on the uh, L.A. Convention Center downtown in L.A., um, I think it was the second biggest conference ever. 13,000 were at the Seattle conference in 14, but it was, uh, I mean, it was good. It was, you know, but so it's a huge book fair where just every, every press on earth, uh, every micro press, every literary press on earth comes and has a booth and all the MFA programs and all the literary nonprofits. And then increasingly, uh, the trade houses are showing up too. So Penguin Random House was there. The New York Times had a booth showing off their uh, virtual reality film thing with the Google Cardboard Reader. Um, and then there's just there were over 500 panels and events and things like that. That sounds very exciting. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of the highlights. Were there particular authors you got to see or programs that you went to? Well, so the, the interesting thing this year is that um, AWP's had kind of a tough year. It's been... It, it's a it's an important organization in the academic and creative writing world, and it's been under fire this year for not being sufficiently inclusive of people with disabilities and of people of color. Uh, there was a there was a period of time where it felt like they weren't maybe uh, being so receptive to these comments, and then mm-hmm. um, at the conference it began to feel like they they were. And so the the keynote speaker they had was Claudia Rankin, who wrote the book Citizen, which is 
you know, a book very much about racism. Um, and uh, so she gave a keynote speech basically about how the workshop, the writing workshop, is not really a safe space for people of color. I mean, and so, so that created some conversation uh, throughout the conference, and I think we'll have some repercussions going forward. There was, uh, for the first time, a disability caucus at the conference, which was basically uh, a, a meetup of people who self-identify as disabled uh, for the purpose of creating representation for themselves within the organization. And so things like that, I think, made it feel like there were steps being taken, which will have ramifications within academia as well. And then alongside all of that, it was it was just a good, mm. kind of a good vibe at the, at the conference, a good vibe at the book fair, lots of people selling books. And, and I, I felt like there was some sense of relief that the, the conference made some space for these subjects in the programming, though I think others felt maybe there wasn't enough space made. But it's it's a start, which is better than yeah. maybe you'd had before. Yeah. And it also seemed that you had, you, you had said that traditionally this was for mostly literary or smaller publishers would show up. But it seemed to be that there were uh, quite a few mid-size or a growing number of mid-size and even large uh, yeah. houses coming. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, it's it's basically everyone from, from Norton on down in size goes mm-hmm. or has, has gone for a long time. Um, and now the big five are starting to show up as well. I think, you know, just because it, it ends up being... You know, it's it's the people who are the book reviewers who are there and also who are the teachers and who are, mm-hmm. you know, going to help engender generations of book consumers. And so right. I think the, the trade presses want to be there. So is this conference for uh, academics uh, uh, maybe looking for work or academics who want to talk with other academics about classes and writers looking for um Publishers. I mean, is this a little bit of everything? Or yeah, it's what a, is the main? It's the main a bit thing? of everything. I think it began as a place for creative writing programs to meet up and talk about mm. pedagogical issues, and it's grown into a place where there's probably some element of book deals happening. Certainly, a lot of job interviewing happening, though not as much as at MLA, which is the big academic right. conference, and then just a lot of like craft talks and mm-hmm. you know writing stuff. Right. What What were some of your favorite? items on the program, if you uh, recall them in the, the haze of jet lag? Um, well, I don't know. There was a there was a panel on small... It was a bunch of small press publicists just talking about how to publicize a book. It was folks from Copper Canyon Press and Boa Editions, which is my publisher, and um, a couple of other presses. Milkweed, I think. No, not Milkweed. Anyway, um, I, I just love hearing how small presses navigate a world that's really designed for the trade publishers. I mean, in terms mm. of securing media coverage and, and strategizing about that. So there was that. Um, I, I spent a lot of time at the book fair. Uh, we had a booth at the book fair, so I met a lot of people who were coming to ask questions about book life or just kind of walking through and trying to see what all the booths were about. And you yourself moderated a panel, perhaps on a book that you have uh, forthcoming. Tell I did. I I had a panel uh, about uh, Delmore Schwartz. I've edited right. a collection of his selected writings, and uh, so I had a few other writers uh, and academics speak uh, about that. It was uh, uh, Steph Burt, the critic, uh, Carolyn Casey from Coffeehouse Press, and Kazim Ali, who's a poet, and... Kevin Proofer, who's a poet, and it was exciting. I mean, I've spent the last two years kind of alone with Delmore Schwartz and, and right. on pieces of paper, and it was sort of the first time 
I got to sort of bring them to life in front of people, and that was very exciting. And and that's also the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. That sounds really cool. It was fun. It was really fun. So you mentioned that people were asking a lot about Book Life, which is PW's self-publishing program. Um, why do you think there's so much continued interest, especially in this context, or of, you, of all these small publishers who are also really clearly interested in books? Well, I think... Um, all of these communities, the, the creative writing community, the academic community, the indie author community are starting to blend into each other pretty profoundly. So where AWP used to be all academics and then all academics and small press writers, now it's just kind of everybody. Um, and so a lot of people there were self-publishing authors who were looking for ways of promoting themselves and looking for strategies for how to go about doing what they want to do. So even that self-publishing panel was um, part, I mean, not the self-publishing panel, the publicity panel was sort of geared toward authors who might want to take some of these small press strategies and apply them to their own efforts. Um, so I, you know, I think, I mean, obviously with the continuing proliferation of writing programs, you get more and more people who are writing and there aren't necessarily presses f with slots for all of them. So, you know, they're just more authors with manuscripts. Um, and AWP is one of the places they show up. I didn't realize that um, writing programs were in a in a boom right now. They're, they, they, they kind of were. Mm -hmm. um, I think like all graduate programs after 9-11, there was a big surge of people going back to grad school because there weren't jobs. Um, I think th it's sort of a bubble that is, is reaching its, its capacity. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're still feeling the kind of the fallout from it or the, you know, the effects of the growth. Huh. That's interesting. That's not a connection I would have made. I, academia is totally a, a foreign land to me. Um, but uh, it sounds like these connections between academia and small press and, and indie authors are all becoming much stronger. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, academia, creative writing programs and small presses have been pretty linked for a long time. Right. Um, you know, de many decades. Um, I think, you know, self-publishing is, is still so much growing because of technology that it, it it's now, yeah, interfacing with writing programs and these other things. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Craig. It's You're always welcome. a pleasure to talk with you and to hear about the conference. Pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Sanjeev Sahoda, author of The Year of the Runaways. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 